Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking trash, or rubbish as they say in the UK and Ireland. It's a thing we pay little attention to, really, yet it's one with major implications for society and for government. That's right, putting a banana peel in the compost heap is a political act. Bringing your garbage cans out on a rainy Tuesday night is a decision that you overlook in municipal power and personal agency. I never really thought about it like that. I pay a private company to dispose of my garbage, which is a necessity where I live because my municipality does not offer to collect my waste. Other localities do, which raises questions about the role of government. Did the founders imagine this role that the state would play in garbage collection? And when Ronald Reagan said that government was the problem... Surely he wasn't referring to waste collection. Maybe it was. Of course, at that time, the New York City Sanitation Department went on strike three times, basically from 1968 to 1981, creating an odorous chaos in the city and reminding us how important it is to have the trash taken out every week. It turns out you have to go back to the 1890s to understand municipal trash collection and to know how we got to this point where waste is an afterthought in American politics. It wasn't always that way. In the Gilded Age, Trash collection was done by individuals or small bands of amateur collectors that had contracts with houses or streets and sometimes with broader neighborhoods. Most Americans threw waste out their windows and hoped that someone else would deal with it, or they burned it. Collection and responsible disposal is a relatively new part of civil society, and it raises questions about whose trash gets collected and who collects it. Minority neighborhoods are treated differently, and minorities often collect the trash. All of this is covered in Patricia Stratch and Kathleen Sullivan's book, The Politics of Trash, How Governments Use Corruption to Clean Cities, from 1890 to 1929. Both join me today. Professor Stratch is a political scientist at the State University of New York at Albany. She's an expert on public administration, and she's the Howard J. Samuels State and City Policy Center Fellow. She's written extensively about public policies, roots in social mores and economic systems, from the way breast cancer activism has been marketized to the public health emergencies that have gripped us today, like the opioid addiction and COVID. Professor Sullivan is also a political scientist. She's at Ohio University. Her expertise dates back to the 19th century and the politics of the family. She's got a great book on women's rights and suffragette activism. 
Professors Stretch and Sullivan are complementary scholars working from two different centuries on American political development, and I am so pleased to have the chance to ask them about garbage. Welcome to the show, professors. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we, I mean, where do I start with this? It's a book about trash. We all throw stuff out. Um, you wrote a book about it. What I'm interested to talk about first is is how you got here, because I imagine that you were debating between the two of you about uh, whether this goes in the recycling bin or whether it goes in the garbage bin, or, or was it that kind of moment, or was it a light bulb, or was it a long slog to this, you know, this this moment that you produced the book? Tell us all about it. Well, uh, we actually got to this from our study of marriage and family, believe it or not. Um, yeah, so Patty and I have been co-authoring for years, and we started out because we, each of us had done our first project on family. Patty had studied uh, the government's use of family in 20th century public policy, and I studied uh, marriage under the common law in the 19th century. And what we had in common is that we recognized that governments relied on family to get things done, either to establish obligations for um, husbands to take care of their families, or as Patty's work showed, you know, offering tax breaks to families in various ways. And so, so we, we, our commonality was that we realized that this kind of non-governmental institution was relied on by governments. And we kept trying to pitch that argument, but it would get a bit siloed as a study of women rather than as a study of government. So Patty and I just sat down one day and said, what is the most basic function of government? And it took us to uh, municipal governments, right? Because they practically get things done. And to tell you the truth, we were deciding between garbage and maybe water provision or sewerage. So we chose garbage. I think one of the things that um, was really interesting was people, as Kathleen mentioned, we study family. People kept saying that's not politics. And so the goal of this project is to say politics is everywhere, even in your garbage, even in the ways you dispose of garbage, even in the fact that you don't think about that as politics, that is politics. And so we wanted to show that at the most basic level, you could find politics and you could trace back how it is that governments get things done and the resources they rely on. And those may not be resources that political scientists traditionally think about, like, oh, here's an official, here's an agency. And so that's really how we got started in trash. And then, you know, we had all of the people calling us the garbage girls and they <laughs> all of the fun things that go along with studying something like this. That's brilliant. And I love that two of you are working together because, uh, well, scholarship is a lonely existence, really. So I, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but how is the partnership developed? I mean, has it strengthened your own, I don't know, your own interests and, and sort of logic and analysis of the past? I just want to say that I think what's I, you know, I, I feel very comfortable in the 20th century. So going back to the 19th century was a little scary for me. Kathleen is very much at home in that. I, you know, do interviews and a little bit of archival research and she is like an archival expert. And so I really learned a lot from her through this project. And so it was really fun to work with her and to, to get a new set of skills and to really appreciate the way that uh, she does research. And so that was one of the really fun things for me and all of the little fun bits and stories and like little, you know, trash falling off wagons. That's all Kathleen's writing in there, you know, 
So that, that I think I learned a lot from her and that was, that was the fun part for me. I don't know what she got out of the deal. Well, same. Uh, right. So I don't talk to a living person in my research. And I was able to just join Patty in her study of public administration, and which I now bring to my teaching. It's a, and I'm bringing to my other research projects. So um, we've learned so much from one another. And also we've learned, um, you know, the proclivities of our own habits of writing and research. We, it's a very intimate relationship. You see a lot of things that we don't usually show one another in our own writing process. And also Patty's just become a beloved friend in my life. She's just a cherished colleague and friend. And we've been through a lot together in all these years. And um, it's been amazing to have a partner as you go through life and academia mid-career. Absolutely. I wish I had someone as close in my own career. And I think it's really, uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to bounce ideas off people and share methodologies, you know. And, yes. And, yeah. So wonderful. All right. Look, I won't, I won't get into that anymore, although I'll probably have questions for you later about it. But walk us through the book because well, I want to get into the nitty gritty, so to speak. Um, let's start at the late 19th century and the American city. What does it smell like? How would our senses be stimulated or revolted at that time? <laughs> oh, yeah. So you've got, so what you've got is you've got cities are growing. Uh, you've got more people living there, but you don't necessarily have the infrastructure to take all their waste away, right? So you might have streets that are unpaved. You might have horses going down the street who are pooping on the street. Um, there might be uh, dogs and rats going through, uh, you know, just kind of garbage dumps or open boxes on the street. Uh, you know, in certain cities, uh, they might have brought in pigs to roam around and eat some of the garbage. Um, they were just such a mess. Um, so I'll put there with that. <laughs> One of the interesting things about going back and reading these descriptions is that we think about cities in a particular way now, but they were really terrible places to live in terms of what it, what they smelled like, what the experience was like. So Kathleen was talking about, you know, dogs and horses, but there were also dead animals in the street. There was waste, human waste, animal waste garbage in the street. So it was really difficult to kind of pass through city streets and they smelled really, really bad. And so the descriptions from officials at the time were things like, this is the filthiest hole in the land. And they're writing about their own city and they're saying these, you know, very vivid descriptions about what it was like. And so it was, they were, I think to our standards, if we were to time travel back, we would we would find them very unpleasant places and you know the mortality rates in cities were really terrible like people were dying compared to rural areas because as Kathleen mentioned they didn't have the infrastructure for water and for garbage and all of those kinds of things so not pleasant by today's standards by any means and possibly I guess by what you're saying a public health disaster as well whether it be cholera or other diseases like that yes yeah, and what we find is that sanitarians were onto this, right? From the mid-19th mid century on, they were recognizing it, studying it, being alarmed by it. And so what we do early in the book is to kind of track the work of sanitarians as a profession and also kind of seeing as they um, organize um, to see kind of how they were able to operate. Um, they would establish themselves in boards of health. They tried to have a national board of health for a bit, but that did, never kind of took off. 
Um, and they would be um, combating with local business interests, right? Those sanitarians were annoying for business interests, even though business interests wanted the streets to be cleared so commerce could literally flow through the city. So they had a lot in common, but they were all often in combat with one another. So what we find is that sanitarians had a lot of information, but not necessarily access um, in the local governing networks. And it's, you know, we started this and it seemed so distant back in the 2000s, whenever we began, it seems so distant from what we're experiencing now, but a lot of the same processes were at play because these sanitarians, these experts, they knew there was a problem. They had knew what to do about the problem. They were like throwing out solutions. Businesses were offering to pay for these solutions and these government officials, these local officials were ignoring them and saying, no, you know, we don't want your help. We don't want your advice. We don't want you anywhere near designing these programs. So one of the most interesting things in the book for me as I was reading it was that there's these five things that you outline as to how the system can work, how garbage collection can work. Can you walk us through what those five things are? Because I, I think that image of the 19th and early 20th century is being plagued by garbage and everyone wanting it to go away is great, but that's that process about how you get there is fascinating. Yeah, so we derived this list inductively, right, based on the material that we found in all of our cities. And so what we found is that uh, the first issue was expertise, right? So that's like sanitarians or engineers who knew how to fix problems. And again, this kind of undid some of the presumptions we had when we started this book. So we just thought, well, people know how to fix it. But of course, what we found was that those experts could be marginalized. So those experts' knowledge was not going to be brought into governing unless there was, number two, the political will to follow through and carry out um, these ideas of experts. And, you know, that political will could come from various things. It could be virtuous, right? It could be a notion of, yes, let's get together and clean the city. Uh, or it could be um, a corrupt regime that thought we could make some money off this, right? So what we found is that related to political will then was capacity. Capacity is a notion we use in American political development. Does the government really have the ability to follow through with this commitment it's made? And so in looking at capacity or ability, what we find is that cities did what governments do. They look around for available resources. And that resource might be like, you know, hire an engineer to be the commissioner of public works or it might be a uh, contract out garbage collection and toss that contract to the brother-in-law of the local party boss as they did in Pittsburgh. So we, um, we find all of those to be resources. It's not that we agree with corruption so much as we recognize corruption as just another resource of governing. Uh, the fourth thing we found was actually about compliance. So once governments had garbage collection set up and they have all these rules, you know, what garbage can to use here, you know, they're going to pick up garbage on Tuesday, they've got it all down. All of a sudden they realized that uh, people were not putting their garbage cans out or they weren't putting them out in the cans as they were required. And so this was where we really started to think of more about political culture, right? Because you had people who lived in cities who never had organized garbage collection. They all got rid of their garbage some way. Maybe they, a farmer would come around and they put their food scraps on his wagon. 
maybe they bury it in the privy in the backyard, like what dump it in a vacant lot nearby or in the river. And so when cities um, started to have formal garbage collection practices, some residents were just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And we're just going to squirrel our garbage away like we have been. And so uh, Charles Chapin, who's one of our really renowned sanitarians in garbage collection, called the garbage can problem probably the biggest nuisance of the time. Because a city can do however much it wants, but if residents don't comply, that public program is not going to work. So compliance was a big issue. And the fifth thing we found was political cover. So that is uh, the issue when, well, listen, all of the cities we studied had pretty substandard garbage collection. Even the good ones were not great. And so, you know, people would start to criticize the government, to blame the government, and the government would deflect blame. And so often it shows poor neighborhoods, right, to blame people's personal practices um, for the, the government's own kind of uh, shortcomings. Patty, did you want to add anything? Because it seems like that's the that's what the sort of the, what you came up with from the end of this. But the starting point of it was these trash collectors who were not necessarily working for the government, or and they, they some of them weren't even experienced. So there's a there's a sort of human story to the the, the framework that you've got around this. Yeah, so we started from a very different place than the place we ended up, which Kathleen just laid out so nicely. And the place we started with was saying like, okay, well, here's this problem. Cities are dirty. Cities have a a health crisis on their hands, right? Because a lot of people are getting sick. So, you know, what what do they do and why don't they do the same thing? Because different cities were doing different things. And so we collected all of these data and we're like, wow, you know, here's the south and they're collecting it publicly and here's the uh north and they're northeast and they're collecting it through um private contractors and here's the west and they're doing nothing and so what explains these differences and we really went into it with like okay well here's this like social sciencey framework and what explains these differences and then we went down and we're like collecting data from the archives and we're sitting in the archives in new orleans and we're reading these books that are written in longhand of all the names of all the trash collectors and it's you know hard to read it's hard to digest and then we realize there's all these hatch marks going down the left-hand column and at the top was misses that these were all women that were on the rolls collecting trash in new orleans and then i think at that point kathleen and i nope this is not the (laughs) this is not we're going to throw out everything we thought at the beginning and we're going to learn from the archives, from the data, from the people who were there at the time. And then that is going to be the study. So these five things really came out of sitting in the archives, reading these documents, thinking, this doesn't look at all like what we would expect. Like, why are we in the South? Why are these women collecting trash? Why is this a public program? This doesn't look like anything we thought it would look like. So we came to these five things by studying this program. We, by studying this program, but through this lens that we started off with by thinking what resources do governments use? What problems do they come up with in trying to create a program? And then these are the these are the these are the kinds of resources that we found that they used. And these are the kinds of issues that they needed to address. And so it really came out of throwing everything out we thought we were looking for, sitting down and actually seeing what was happening on the ground. 
So if there's any students listening, this is how you put together a decade-long project on, on <laughs> X topic. The, the methodolo methodologies here, though, are interesting beyond just the, the archival research that you did, too. I mean, there's big questions here about how you investigate. And, and I've got two questions around this. First, how do you pick the five cities that you studied? You know, for listeners, the book dives deep into five cities. It's St. Louis, New Orleans, Charleston, South Carolina, and Pittsburgh. Sorry, and San Francisco. So that's great coverage, but why these five and why not places like New York, Boston, Chicago? And then the second question I had is, did you take any time to look globally to see if there were similar things going on around the world? So I'll jump on that one. So uh, we did look globally only in the sense that when we were looking for explanations at the very beginning about why people collect trash in different ways, we were looking at the literature internationally, right? Because one of the wonderful things about studying cities is that there's so many of them. There's so many in the United States. There's so many globally. It isn't like we're stuck kind of uh, looking at these very few cases. So we did at the very beginning. And then when we got in and kind of we're in New Orleans, we're like, okay, well, we're just going to try to figure out what is happening in these particular cities. And how did we pick these five cities? We started off with that kind of matrix where we were looking at, okay, well, there's a pattern in the Northeast and there's a pattern in the South and there's a pattern in the West. And we're going to try to pick a city that best represents kind of what's going on in these particular areas. So in the Northeast, we picked Pittsburgh. In the South, we picked New Orleans. And in the West, we picked San Francisco. And then we went out to the archives in those three places. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
when we got to um, New Orleans, it was so crazy what we were finding that we did then go to additional Southern cities. So that's how we we started off. Why didn't we look at the five, like these biggest cities? Well, we intentionally chose to look at kind of the second tier cities. These are very big cities at the time. They're important commercial centers, but they aren't the New Yorks or the Boston or the Chicago, which already have a lot written about them. And the stories are much more familiar because the story we want to tell is not a story about any particular city, but about the kind of patterns that we see. And every city had a story that we could have like written a whole book on. Um, so every city is interesting and unique, but what we wanted to kind of pull out was the, the, the pattern, those five kinds of things that Kathleen was talking about versus here's this interesting story about what's happening in New York. Well, that's a great explanation. And yeah, sorry, Kathleen, go right ahead. Oh, I was just going to say what was great about that methodologically is that as students of American political development, we found a comparative study which uh, if you just study at the American federal government, you're not able to do that. So uh, comparing cities really was so fruitful for us. Okay, so one more question then about archives and methodology. I mean, we've, you know, for anyone that's been to an archive before, there's finding aids, they usually revolve around people, um, not garbage, right? So when you get yeah. to the archives, how do you go, well, mm -hmm. I need to find something about trash collection. Wh where do you look? Yeah, so we um, we would start with public documents. We would look through annual reports, right? A city's annual reports. And there might be a mayor's message in the beginning. And then the annual report from the Department of Public Works, Department of Streets, uh, Depart uh, Department of Public Health. We would, we would uh, look through all of those different agencies. Um, this is top down, right? But we would look through all of those different agencies to see who was talking about garbage collection. And again, we found that each city did it really differently. Uh, so that was a great start. We also looked through when we were able to access them, um, ledgers. So that's what we were looking at in New Orleans was they would just have ledgers of the, I think it was the public works department. And you could just look month by month with the names of people who were paid. And so we did kind of go through those to get a sense of how that worked in practice. We then, um, you know, we're political scientists, right? So we start with more public documents, but then as our questions kept arising, we worked our way down to try to get more of that human story and the, the relationships, right? There's relationships between public officials and businesses and civic organizations. So we started to kind of flesh that out. We were able to get some of the, um, archival materials of civic organizations, right? Like in Pittsburgh, we got the Civic Club of in uh, Pittsburgh, which was just amazing. Uh, they documented so much. So that for us was more of starting to look at the, you know, technically someone outside government who was watching government so closely. So that was our direction as political scientists. I think one of the interesting things about archival research is that archives are so different depending on where they are and who's funding them and federal archives are big and they're beautiful and they're well organized and municipal archives may be big and beautiful but they may not be and so one of the things that we learn is like the organization of the archives was very different in each of the cities and our experience was very different so we went down to Pittsburgh we could not find any documents on garbage we did a Hail Mary email to a um Pittsburgh historian who's like, oh, because it's in public health, not public works. 
And it was like, oh yes, like we are thinking with where we would expect to find them today and not where they were at the time. Um, and then in, in um, New Orleans, this is a great story about Kathleen and her calmness. <laughs> we flew down to New Orleans and we're looking for these documents. They're in the New Orleans Public Library. That's where the archives are. And so we get there and, you know, we ask for this, these documents and the archivist says, oh, or the librarian says, oh, we don't have what you need. And my heart just sank. And then Kathleen said, oh, we came all this way. Do you mind if we look? And they brought out this volume that was still sealed from the 1890s. And that was the one that listed all of the women cart operators and that had everything we needed. So they did have exactly what we need uh, or needed at the time. And so it was a great story for any students who are, are listening that you kind of just have to persevere and, um, and see, because it's not obvious from the outside where you're going to find garbage documents or any kind of documents. It sounds like you're more historians than you think you are. Uh, <laughs> this is historical research at its best, really, you know, uncovering oh. ledgers that have never been seen before. I, mean, <laughs> I well, know, I was excited. It is exciting. And and one of the other exciting things about your book, we'll move on to some of the, the big findings of, of the book, because they are, you know, they are pretty epic here. And one of the most exciting ones that I thought uh, that the book accomplishes is how trash collection created or extended or expanded existing social inequalities. And so can we just start off with the role of women in the story of trash collection? Because you've already mentioned that a little bit. What role do they play in the story? Yeah, so... The interesting thing about women's civic organizations is that they cared about garbage collection all along, right? So even before there were public programs, they wanted the streets clean, they were lobbying their local government, they were moving and shaking. And so what we found is that in many of our cities, even if the city passed a garbage ordinance in the mid 1890s, they often kind of put women on the side. They didn't want their help, right? Because they were too enthusiastic, right? They they were too sincere about garbage collection. So they kind of sidelined them. So we find women's civic organizations doing some really interesting things. Uh, they would say, well, we're not allowed to get involved in the actual municipal garbage collection, but we will raise funds to put public trash cans on street corners, right? Um, or uh, the Pittsburgh organization um, was successful in getting a, a spitting ordinance on streetcars passed. They were really excited about that. Uh, Pittsburgh also had a complaint bureau. You know, people would write down people doing unhygienic things, right? But they were working at the margins, right, where they where they could act in the civic sphere. So then, what we find is probably in about the 1910s or so as cities started to really wrestle with this garbage can problem, they realized that they had to get householders to comply with the garbage can requirements. And we, in thinking about that, Patty and I really thought about power because you know a city could coerce residents, right? They could fine them, but then people are gonna be pretty resentful. And again, people are like, I can get rid of my garbage any way I want. Like, so if you start finding me, like, I'm just gonna, it's just gonna breed resentment. So what we found is that cities really relied on less coercive, softer forms of power. And so what they could do was, and we borrow the concept of infrastructural power to uh, kind of be able to see what's happening. And so what cities start to do is some city governments start to uh, reinstill those relations with women's organizations. 
And the women's organizations were like, great, we will make a flyer about do's and don'ts of putting out your garbage can. Uh, we will make a flyer about hygiene. Uh, you know, in Louisville, they made a movie, right? The Invisible Peril um, about the dangers of, of trash. And so they were all into it. So what we find is that either through formal relations with government or just kind of culturally, you started to see middle-class women model good behavior for others. And, you know, that's why we look at um, advertisements from good housekeeping. So good housekeeping in the 1910s was pitching, you know, garbage cans or all these innovations, like you could burn your own garbage in your kitchen if you want, like kind of inviting housewives to be these kind of model sanitary citizens. So as women started to do that, middle-class women started to do that in the home and then started to teach others, what we find is that this actually reinforces existing social inequalities. So if, if a white middle-class woman was kind of modeling her own behavior, she might look around for somebody who's not complying and that's likely to be poor neighborhoods. Um, and those were neighborhoods that were underserved by public services, right? It wasn't those people's fault that their garbage uh, looked messier than a middle-class neighborhood, but it started to make the political personal. And so it looked like if somebody had good practices, they were a good citizen. And if somebody didn't, it was their own fault. And so uh, those things, again, because garbage itself doesn't look political, those sorts of uh, sorts of uh, ideas that start to circulate in society look personal when actually they're political. Patty, is there anything you want to add to that? No, I just want to, uh, I guess I do. I think that, uh, I think Kathleen laid that out nicely, but we don't think about the, the problems that governments had getting people to comply. And one of the remarkable things is that when we take our trash out, we don't think, oh, the government is making me take out my trash. But at the time, they absolutely did. And this brought down the, the mayoral administration in New Orleans, frustration and anger over these garbage ordinances, right? So the uh, administration was kicked out of power. So this is like not just a quaint thing. This is exactly where people are thinking this is coming into my house, which is why it became a women's issue, right? Be coming into my house, changing the way people behave in their homes, which gets back to your very first question about separating trash, what goes in the recycling, what goes in the garbage. You have to have some sort of um, system for disposing of trash in your house. And so this is how women came to have a voice when it was clear that just saying you had to do something and ordering people to do it didn't work. So yes, women had a voice, women were more influential, but it leads to all of these kind of inequalities that Kathleen was talking about that, that um, you know, re reinforce the kinds of problems that are already there. Sure, and I think you know, your starting point of power as something that is related to trash is so important for other aspects of, of the book too, like race features quite heavily as well. Yeah. And it probably shouldn't come as a surprise that a large number of collectors were African-American and that minority neighborhoods had different collection schedules in some of these cities. But um, you also talk about how racial hierarchies are used to deflect blame for inefficient government collection. Can you tell us what you found around that? Yeah, so this is another thing that goes back to the archival records that we found, because there was really a lot of silence around the race of different actors. And that was actually really puzzling to us, right? Because uh, we, 
it, we, we need it somewhere else. So we had to kind of read between the lines and maybe kind of be attentive to when uh, public officials would start talking about the race of garbage collectors. And that was kind of a signal to us, like, why are you suddenly talking about this? And what we found, it was often to deflect their own blame for their inadequate collection. So that, so again, starting from the top down was a really um, difficult way to ferret out race, right? Um, so, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois had been studying garbage collection in his own time and showing inequities in garbage collection. And instead of starting from the bottom up, we started from the top down, but got there from a different place or a different approach and um, then saw some different things. Because what we were seeing was that government could kind of withhold its discussion of race or use it depending on what government needed to get done. Let's just say when we were down in New Orleans and we were looking at these archives and we were seeing all of these names and then we went home and we matched the names to census records to find out the ethnicity of these women. They were mostly Irish. Uh, they were mostly immigrant women. But the photos show no women actually picking up trash. They show uh, pictures of black men picking up trash, right? So there was this, okay, this and this is what Kathleen is talking about, like the absence. So nobody is talking about, okay, well, this is actually how it worked. We're paying these women, but they're not actually picking up the garbage. And then when they did talk about race, it was to deflect blame in terms of, of of programs that weren't working well. And they would blame, you know, the collectors for not picking up. They would try to blame the previous administration, but when it was clear that it was something happening in the present right now, then they would blame the collectors. And then that's when you'd hear all this discussion of race about, you know, you know, disparaging comments about collectors and disparaging comments about neighborhoods. Incredible. And the other major theme running through this is one of corruption as well, which I don't think anyone will be that surprised about. I mean, in our own modern times, corruption and sanitation seems to still be a, a, a talking point. Um, but how does political corruption in the book uh, intersect with the business of trash, trash collection? So I think we look at um, corruption as a resource of governing. So we are looking the same way we look at gender, the same way we look at racial hierarchies, that government is using something to accomplish something else it's trying to do. And in this case, it's, you know, what corruption does, and we're not saying corruption is a good thing, but it builds political will. These officials are perfectly happy to ignore the rotting dogs in the street and the, you know, pigs roaming around. They're perfectly happy to ignore it until they see like, I can make a lot of money by taking on this issue. So one of the things that we found in Pittsburgh was the uh, political machine that ran Pittsburgh was a uh, one of the one of the men was a, a businessman who owned a uh, paving company, a street paving company. So there is Pittsburgh at the forefront of uh, water, putting in water in the in the city. And you could be like, wow, these are good government types, but that's not why they were doing it. Because every time they put pipes, they have to rip up the street and repave it. So that was their motivation to put in running water and sewerage meant that they would make a lot of money in paving. And because they had the infrastructure, the wagons already, they decided to also take on trash collection. And they were actually relatively decent compared to other cities in doing this. So it, it built political will because they found a way to make money or like in New Orleans, they found a way to build their kind of political support by 
in this case, you know, putting putting uh, uh, widows on the payroll, sympathetic women um, that they could they could dole out some city money to. So it served to political will, but it also served to give them capacity, which Kathleen was talking about, or not, right? And so, so cities that had a capacity through corruption, whatever these corrupt uh, um, leaders had, whatever capacity they had, the city then had, right? So there was a real blurring between public and private. And so in Pittsburgh, there was a political machine. They were businessmen. They were relatively effective at providing services. And so when they came into power, boom, they pushed for expanding city services and they were able to provide those city services by giving a contract to themselves. But still, the city services um, were provided. In other cities, however, you know, the political corruption was very weak, the capacity was very weak. And so Corruption didn't give them anything other than political will, made them want to take on something, but it didn't mean that they could do it very effectively. And that was the story of New Orleans, for example. And can I ask as well about labor and, and unions and the sanitation world? I mean, from your research, what did you find about the role that they play? We didn't find a role for labor or unions because oftentimes these sanitation workers were the most marginalized members of society, right? And so they were very poorly paid. They were um, not treated very well. They were blamed for everything that went wrong. They, um, you know, were oftentimes, these were jobs that people who could get better jobs wouldn't take. Right? So they were kind of considered the, 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 the lowest rung of society. So there wasn't a real kind of labor movement. And then, you know, if you fast forward, what you see is like, you know, a Martin Luther King and the, you know, Memphis sanitation workers strike. That was his very last effort at organizing. Right. And so this is when you can under you can see, right. So how these members of society who work hard who get paid very little, who get blamed for a lot of things, when they start to organize, it's very controversial um, and and people get ups upset about it. But it wasn't happening at the time from what we saw. You see, the absence of that is, is fascinating in its own uh, way as well. I mean, as politics professors, and, and because you've already mentioned, you take this American uh, political development approach to the book, um, if we take a long view of garbage collection from the 19th century, even up till today, there's things like that that we can see that when you when you do begin to see this organization, you know, suddenly it, it, garbage becomes very controversial and the politics become very apparent. So can you, in your own words, maybe connect the past and that Gilded Age progressive era period to today and give us a little potted history of American political development of, of garbage collection? Well, one thing that we find is it's so stunning to us just how much garbage collection today looks like it did in 1895. Uh, it's, it's really not that much different, right? Um, and it, you know, you still have a truck going around, people put their cans out. This is in uh, cities, right? Cities and towns, not rural areas necessarily. Uh, but in general, um, that kind of idea of a garbage truck picking, you know, dumping a garbage can, whisking it away to a far off place to dispose of it in some way is the basic pattern of garbage collection today. Uh, the only uh, kind of newer change that's happened, and Lily Baum Collins uh, looks at this, is uh, you're starting to see some cities move away from a 
sanitation approach to garbage collection and looking at maybe a zero waste approach, right? By have requiring composting, requiring recycling. Uh, but in, um, in a sense, that's still novel. That's in a few cities around the country. So I guess what we see is really more continuity than change. And the development comes in the burying of the notion of that this is political and also the burying of the power relations that are involved in garbage collection. It's been normalized as a public service. And, uh, and so I guess the merits in acknowledging that or to look around today when you look at ways in which people are, you know, when we look at the pandemic, right? And the vaccines and the like, and to see the way that people have reacted to uh, government responses to COVID, I would say that's pretty analogous to what we saw in a city like New Orleans, right? Bristling against having to do something for a government that they don't trust. And so kind of parsing through that and seeing what's new, recognizing use of government power and recognizing the importance of acculturating people to this governing to provide public health for all is a real achievement. It just, it doesn't just happen because there's a problem. And I just want to add to that, that it is the same garbage collection and disposal methods. They have not changed for the most part collection through cans and wagons like Kathleen was talking about and disposable disposal through dumping and incineration. So the, the methods, you know, you would think would be so different, but basically they're the same. We're relying on the same technologies we did a long time ago. And in San Francisco, for example, it's the same collector. It is the same company. They've changed their names that we were studying. They wouldn't let us into their archives that we were studying in the 19th century. And so one of the things that's really remarkable is that um, when these corrupt governments kind of get get pushed out and reformist regimes come in, they take the same garbage infrastructure and they use that same infrastructure so all of the corruption and the gender and racial hierarchy, which we're writing about, is still inside these garbage programs. They don't get, they don't clean house, they don't eliminate them, they don't start all over again. So these origins are still baked into the way we do garbage collection today. And so that is really the story of political development, is a story about how these Things that we're looking at today, right? Sanitation strikes by sanitation workers, the corruption we see around garbage, you know, all this modeling good behavior versus kind of sloppy people with sloppy cans. It's still baked into the way we do and the way we think about garbage collection. And that was probably, you know, we thought we were looking at something very different, but it turns out we're looking at something that, you know, today, which has all of these strings to the past. Amazing. Any ideas how we fix the problems that are still inherent in the system, whether it's the administrative state, whether it's, you know, the number of bins that we have and the methods and technologies we use to collect or get rid of waste? Is there, are there ways that you found in your book that give us answers to how we can fix some of the problems? Well, first of all, just listen to people, right? So instead of having a government explain what's wrong with the neighborhood or a civic organization explain what's wrong with the neighborhood, how about the people in the neighborhood have a space to explain what's going wrong in the neighborhood? And we are seeing that um, there are environmental social justice uh, movements around the country, right? Where we're hearing about lead and water, uh, where we're hearing about, uh, you know, it, it, uh, uh, polluted ground and like, so that I think giving neighborhoods a voice and a space to 
be equal players and this would be the start. And I think um, I would like, okay, this is very selfish, but I would like to see more studies of more kind of mundane things that we have all around us and kind of unpack the politics that go into those very mundane things. I don't think a lot of people realize um, you know, some of the inequalities that we see are related to these things that we think is very apolitical. And so I think understanding and um, might be part of might be part of the solution too to understand how these inequalities get baked into public policies and public programs and how then we reproduce those for over a century. Well, I just think that this is such a remarkable study, not least because of the, the way it's outlined and the way it frames the question, but also really importantly, the conclusions that it draws about our society. And, and, and obviously, you know, your passion for politics and your enthusiasm for putting that at the forefront of everything, not least trash, is it's inspiring. And this is really, really amazing work that I hope Everyone that listen, listens to the show will will pick up a copy and, and, and give it a read because it's well worth it. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure to talk to you about this. We love talking trash. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we do. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining the show. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.